15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us. Uh, this is Space Nuts where we talk astronomy, space science and all sorts of exciting and interesting things and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Coming up in today's program, we will be uh, answering the question as to why comets can have green heads but not green tails. I've always wondered that. Every day it just crosses my mind. I go, why do comets have green heads and not have green tails? It's mystified me. Didn't know it was a problem. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll also be looking at um, a magnetic field that's been detected on an exoplanet for the first time. And a couple of questions, one from Justin about cryostasis. Will it ever be possible? I certainly hope so. I could use the sleep. And uh, Vinicius, I hope I've pronounced your name correctly, from Brazil, uh, wants to talk about uh, gravitomagnetism as maybe an alternative theory to dark matter. Uh, and gravitons as well. Uh, pretty deep discussion, that one. It'll take us probably four to five hours to knock that over, but we'll get into it later. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? I am well, and I'm yeah. very, very relieved to see that the James Webb telescope got off the ground without a hitch and has unfurled. Yes, on its, its way to L2. So that's pretty exciting news. It is great news. That's right. I mean, I think there have been several nail-biting moments, not just the launch itself, uh, which I did watch live, uh, but the um, you know the, the the unfurling bits, the unfurling of the uh, uh, of the of the um, solar shield. The, the the key thing apparently was um, getting the the solar panels unfurled so that mm. the telescope has power but yeah we're on the way uh, expecting to be on station in a month or so looking forward to it yeah i i, I looked that up online I, I missed the launch because they they delayed it and when i thought oh, okay they probably delayed it by 24 hours no <laughs> <laughs> so when i expected it to be launched it had already gone but i watched yeah. the replay uh, yeah. but i did I did look up the live telemetry, and that was exciting. Just uh, watching the the numbers tick over as it travels, uh, I yeah. love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got that's that it. put in my car. So uh, <laughs> it's amazing, it is cool. amazing stuff. That's right. Yeah, it is. Anyway, we've uh, probably got a lot to talk about in the coming twelve months as things develop with the James Webb Telescope. So we'll keep you posted. Yeah. Did, now, did you did you see the um, the the, the purported first image from the James Webb telescope no. on, on Twitter. No, so <laughs> um, it, it, what it shows is um, uh, it shows some words which are written backwards and they say remove before flight. Uh, <laughs> Somebody's so, having a go. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I like yeah. that. That's a nice one. I like that. Um, uh, speaking of uh, first uh, ever images, that little yes. device behind yeah. me, I've, yeah. I've taken my first astro photograph with a telescope and got a daytime picture of the moon and uh, came up all right. Very, very good. The first astro photograph I took was also with a telescope the same size as yours, a three and a half inch telescope mm. in the old measure, and also of the moon. And it was 
pretty rubbish, but you could see the craters. That was that was um, Andrew in April 1962. Oh boy! So. <laughs> yeah, uh, 59 years later, I got mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what really confused me, Fred? When I um, got the box, I went, "Hang on a minute." supposed to be a three and a half inch telescope this is about a meter long <laughs> <laughs> yes well in the in the in the 19th century telescopes were measured by the length William Herschel talks about his 20 foot telescope and his 40 foot telescope wow. and that was the length of it exactly now he's just he showing off yeah yeah he was showing off yeah 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 we could talk about telescopes all day and we uh, could yeah <laughs> showed me one a minute ago that's how old Oh, uh, 200 years old, yeah. That's, uh, 200 years old, and Fred picked that up at an op shop when it was brand new. Uh, <laughs> Quite so. <laughs> yeah, that's a real ripper. Okay, let's get down to business, as I tend to stay uh, to say. And uh, they've been looking into this, this. It's actually a long mystery. This has been going on for a while, uh, wondering about why uh, certain comets have a green head but the tail isn't green. And now it sounds like a pretty simple thing to try and solve, but this has actually been going on for a very long time and I think they've finally cracked it. Yeah, they, they have. Um, so it, it's quite topical, Andrew, as well, because we've got Comet Leonard in we our have. skies at the moment, which I have not managed to see because we've had so such uh, rotten weather here in yeah. Sydney. Uh, same and I think same here, and now I understand the frustration astronomers have yes, exactly. with the weather because I've wanted to get out there every night to have a look at this, and yeah. I can't. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think it's still visible. It's probably getting slightly fainter because it's where it's moving away from us, but it's still not uh, at its brightest in terms of its proximity to the sun. It, it'll get even brighter um so this to, to the story though um and you know it's some of the photographs of comet leonard that have been on the web uh clearly show the green color of its uh, of its coma uh and just to get the, the technical terms right the, the comets are basically um dirty icebergs as or uh, icy dirt balls or dirty ice balls whatever whichever way you want to have them they're made mostly of ice and dust and they're only a few kilometers in diameter the nucleus of a comet but then when it gets near the sun the the Ices start uh, outgassing; they basically turn into vapor, and and that causes what's called the coma, which is the fuzzy region around the head of the comet. Mm. And then uh, th those gases are driven away from the comet by the radiation pressure of the sun, so you, you get a tail. Uh, in fact, often comets have two tails: one is what's called the dust tail, and the other is the the plasma tail or the gas tail. Uh, the dust tail is usually uh, sort of neutral in color. Whereas the plasma tail sometimes does have colour in it, but it's never green, and that's what's um, you know what what this uh, this uh, um, uh, story is about. Uh, so that uh, as I mentioned, the the coma of the comet, and we've seen this with Comet Leonard, often has this greenish colour in it, um, but that disappears as the gas moves into the tail, uh, tra trailing actually not exactly behind the comet. It's in in the in the comet the direction opposite the sun because uh, the, the the trails at uh, the tail of a comet is not always behind it it no. can be in front of it as well it but it but it always points away from the sun so <clears throat> the there is a theory although it has been a theory um proposed 
90 years ago uh, in the 1930s by a physicist called Gerhard Herzberg. Um, and he, uh, he, he suggested that the, 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 the greenness comes from uh, something called diatomic carbon, uh, uh, which is two carbon atoms stuck together, C2, um, uh, which is a, it's, a, it's something that, that we don't find on Earth because it's an unstable molecule. Uh, but he, he theorized that, that that green color comes from uh, the diatomic carbon. And you can, you can kind of gather that from the spectrum of the comet, which is rich in, in green. Um, however, <clears throat> that disappears. And he theorized that what was happening was that the sunlight falling on these molecules, these carbon molecules, uh, was actually enough to dissociate them. In other words, it's, it splits them mm. uh, into carbon atoms. And that was the theory, but it's never been tested because di uh, diatomic carbon, or sometimes called dicarbon, uh, is, is not stable on Earth and very hard to test. Uh, so... Um, Cut to the chase. This is an Australian story because it's been done in Sydney by scientists at the University of New South Wales, in fact, um, led by uh, Timothy Schmidt, a uh, great name in astronomy, yeah. uh, who's a professor of chemistry, uh, and he's the senior author in, in this study. Um, uh, so what they've done is confirmed it. So they've, they've done experiments which involve vacuum systems and lasers and uh, a lot of high-tech, 20, 21st century equipment that essentially uh, mimic what is thought to be happening, um, and so what 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 it does they 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 use a vacuum chamber um, and essentially uh, uh, make the molecule C two uh, by actually what they did was they took a, a, a bigger organic molecule, something called perchloroethylene, um, whose formula is C2Cl4, uh, two carbon atoms for chlorine atoms. And basically, they used a laser to, to, to strip off all its chlorine atoms and leaving behind dicarbon, diatomic carbon, the C2. Mm. And then they sent that down the tube in the vacuum chamber to the other end and, and um, essentially flooded it with... Uh, ultraviolet radiation, which is what the sun does, um, and observed that this tears the, the dicarbon atoms apart uh, and basically gives gives you the um, you know gives you the, uh, the, the the single carbon atoms which don't form a green glow when they're excited, and actually they also managed to measure uh, the strength of this carbon bond, uh, and that's. So it's a quite a complex experiment, but basically what it has done is confirmed that Hertzberg's theory was exactly correct, uh, even though Hertzberg himself had no access to to any kind of way of physically testing mm. uh, testing this stuff. Um, actually, that, sorry, the lead author on on the study, a big pardon, is is not um, Timothy Schmidt. Uh, he's the senior author, but the lead author is um, somebody called Yasmin Bor uh, Borsovsky. Uh, is actually a former U UNSW honors science student, um, and uh, one of the things that 
she, she says is, um, it's incredible that someone in the 1930s thought this is probably what's happening, down to the level of detail of the mechanism of how it was happening. Yeah. And then 90 years later, we find out it is happening. It's a very nice quote. Um, so the story is then that uh, when these comets get near the sun, some of the organic molecules, and these are things probably like methane and, and molecules of that sort, which we know uh, are within are, are in the ices of the comet, uh, they get blasted by ultraviolet light from the sun, which forms the diatomic carbon, which glows green. But then as they, as they get further away from the comet and perhaps the gas pressure around them declines, uh, the, the further ultraviolet action from the sun splits the diatomic carbon into single carbon atoms and the green disappears. Yeah. Uh, so really nice story um, with, you know, some good experimentation uh, to actually demonstrate what's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the University of New South Wales, of course, one of the uh, most esteemed universities in Australia. So um, nice feather in their cap. It is. It is indeed. And mm. um, I'm very proud to be an honorary professor in the U University of New South Wales, but I contributed absolutely nothing to this work uh, except talking about it on Space Nuts. So there you go. Well, that's fair enough. <laughs> it's fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Now, you did mention that sometimes comets have two tails. I yeah. believe Comet Leonard uh, has sort of made the news not only because it appeared, but it has um, an unusual tail, does it not? It, it does, um, and um, it's got structure in it, which is coming from what you might call outburst events on the nucleus. So you, you get, uh, you know, perhaps for whatever reason, you get a sudden burst of, of activity. This, perhaps um, the sun warms up a patch of the comet surface, and this is the icy surface, and, and you've got a region below where a cavity is formed in the ice, and that the pressure in there ex, uh, actually gets high enough to, to, to blow off at the icy, thin icy layer that's covering it up. Mm. And so what you get then is a, a cloud of gas being released by the comet, and that gradually works its way back uh, through the through the tail of the comet. Um, and so you see these features in the comet's gas tail. And there's been one that's really quite extraordinary because it looks like a finger pointing upwards. I don't know whether you've seen that one. No. Uh, but it's it's the effect of one of these gassy outbursts. It just looks like, you know, the finger of God pointing upwards. Very, <laughs> very emotive stuff, especially yeah. at Christmas time, Andrew. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, no, I just thought it was fascinating that they yeah. noticed these uh, anomalies with uh, Comet Leonard. Yeah, um, and, I mean, and of course, I suppose that also adds weight to the um, the risk of it breaking up. That's one of yes, the things they're worried will happen that, with it. That's that's correct. That's mm. right. So so far so good. Hopefully, it'll survive long enough for you and I to take a peek. I hope so. Yeah, I'm hoping for clear clearer weather tonight, but it's still raining at the moment. Well, it looks rare. pretty good here. We've got blue rained. skies, but uh, we've been having sort of late afternoon storms build yes, up and cloud yes. cover, and that sort yeah. of just kills everything. And our sun, the sun's not setting here till around about nine o'clock. So yeah, you've got to be really patient this time of year. <laughs> and <laughs> and the not. comet, the comet's setting not too far after that as well. Mm, that's exactly right. The window is very narrow. Mm. Okay, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, of course, uh, from week to week, I rabbit on about becoming a patron. And, of course, that is optional and something you can do through our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io, and just click on the supporter link and... Uh, 
you know, if, if becoming a patron uh, and making monthly contributions to the show is uh, something you want to do, that is great. Uh, you can also just click on the Buy Us a Cup of Coffee link, which is a, a one-off uh, donation type of an approach. But if you're not willing to spend money, that's fine. However, you could do us a favour by leaving a review about uh, Space Nuts on your favourite podcast distributor, whoever you listen through, whether it's iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Uh, I'm told, and we've never asked for reviews before, but I'm told if you do leave a review, uh, it does get us more attention, therefore increases our audience. And with increased audience, um, there's, I don't know, I don't know what happens. But anyway, uh, more people are listening and that's what we want. Uh, Now, if you listen through Spotify, up until now, you haven't been able to leave reviews, but that has changed. So if you listen on Spotify through an Android device, it's getting a bit more complicated, you can leave reviews uh, for Space Nuts or any podcast for that matter. So if you would like to do us that little favour, that would be greatly appreciated and uh, hopefully that will lead to uh, even bigger numbers and maybe some more friends on the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. Who knows, you might meet some nice people as a consequence of giving us a review. Uh, So there it is, Uh, totally up to you, of course. Now, Fred, uh, let us go on to this uh, next exciting story, and that is, and I I suppose this is a story where, like the previous one, we thought this situation existed, we ended up proving it 90 years later. Well, this is a situation where, uh, and I think I said to you, do exoplanets likely have uh, magnetic fields and things like that? And you said, yeah, probably. Uh, well, now they've actually proven it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's a, it is an exciting story. And it's it does have um, – it's got kind of synergies with what we've just been talking about because carbon is the, is the key diagnostic that's been used here, <clears throat> excuse me, to, uh, to, de- to demonstrate uh, that an exoplanet has a magnetic field. Uh, and I should mention this work is there's a number of different uh, nationalities and and uh, institutions involved with it, um, including the University of Arizona uh, Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. That's one of the great <clears throat> excuse me institutions for planetary studies in the world. But there's also the um, Astrophysical Institute in Paris, which has. Um, uh, I think the lead author is actually from the Parisian uh, group, uh, but anyway, it is—it's a multinational task, and that's fitting because it's a—it's <laughs> a global uh, thing that they're talking about. Global in the sense of being another world, not ours. So what has happened is Hubble, the Hubble telescope, has been used to observe a, a known exoplanet which is called HAT P11b. Um, the, the HAT uh, project is, is um, I've forgotten the exact um, name for the acronym, but there's one of the telescopes is at Siding Spring, uh, and another one is in La Palma in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, it's a, it's a, um, a project for discovering planets but that transit across the face of their parent stars. The transit method, which we've talked about many times, where the light of the parent star dims slightly, uh, and reveals uh, the um, transit of a planet going around uh, the star. Uh, and 
one of the things, one of the really clever things that you can do if you've got a sensitive enough telescope, and the Hubble is one of the most sensitive telescopes we have available, and certainly in the wave band that this work has been done, which I'll just mention, it's in the ultraviolet wave band um, rather than visible light, and that's uh, a, basically a, a province unique to the Hubble. Um, when Hubble dies down, we won't have any way of looking into the far ultraviolet until another space telescope comes along because mm. James Webb, of course, is at the other end of the, the spectrum. It's looking at the, the infrared uh, signature of, of objects. Anyway, by observing uh, hat P11b in uh, ultraviolet with the Hubble, what you can do is you can watch... Uh, what happens to the spectrum of the star. Remember, you can't see any details. All you can see is this point of light, which is the star, whose light dims when the planet passes in front of it by a, a slight amount. But you can also look at the way its spectrum changes as the planet passes in front of it, because there's a tiny change in the spectrum of the star. And by that, I mean, you know, that the nature of, of the gases that are in the star's atmosphere, yeah. uh, that changes because you've got imprinted on it the signature of the gases that are in the planet's atmosphere, um, only a tiny amount, but enough that can be detected. And what you can do is subtract out the star's background spectrum, and you're left with the spectrum of the planet's atmosphere. It's fantastic stuff. Um, uh, requires great care in the observations, but it can be done. And that's what has now been done um, the, uh, uh, with, with uh, HAP P11b. Uh, the, the research that we're talking about actually observed the planet during six of its transits uh, as it passes in front of the star. Uh, and um, they, what they detected was carbon ions. So carbon ions are carbon atoms that have had uh, some of their electrons stripped off. Uh, and the fact that they are ions, that they've got electrons missing, means that they interact with magnetic fields. Uh, and so um, what has been observed is these carbon atoms, the stripped off carbon atoms, um, uh, forming a cloud around the planet itself uh, which is uh, essentially uh, being uh, uh, shepherded, if I can put it that way, by the magnetic field of the planet. So what they're observing is a direct observation of this planet's magnetosphere, uh, which, of course, proves that it has a magnetic field. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, um, it's a, a signature uh, demonstrating the magnetic field of the exoplanet and the first time it's been done. Um, so that's really interesting work, but the, these scientists have done more because what they've observed is the fact that um, this, this planet is uh, quite close to its parent star. I can't remember how close uh, it's... Uh, oh, okay, it's 1 20th of the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Wow. So it's close by, uh, and that means it's it's in the full uh, breeze of the uh, of the solar wind that's coming from this star. <clears throat> Excuse me. What that's doing is basically boiling off uh, the upper atmosphere of Hat Eleven 
sorry, sorry, hat P11B, and forming what's called a magnetotail. Now, the Earth has a magnetotail. It's the, uh, it's the region on the opposite side of the sun where the magnetosphere is dis- highly distorted by the sun's magnetic field. Um, this distortion in the case of hat P11B is much more. In fact, it's, it's the, the magnetotail is, is almost like a comet. It's, it's actually material that is being stripped off the planet's atmosphere. Uh, and it's actually finding a very long, um, you know, a very long magnetotail. Uh, the the planet itself is is a kind of Neptune sized or a bit bigger than Neptune. It's eight uh, percent of the mass of Jupiter. Um, but um, they've, 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 these scientists have done work more work on the on the atmosphere uh, that suggests that it it's the atmosphere is actually similar to Jupiter, more similar to Jupiter than Neptune. Um, and so they yeah they they they. they think that that's a bit of a puzzle that its atmosphere even though it's smaller than much smaller than jupiter that its atmosphere atmospheric constituents resemble jupiter rather than neptune mm. so a- astonishing science that you can get from just this transit of, of a planet across its parent star the disk yeah. of its parent star now I, i've been trying to figure out what hat stands for and correct me if i'm wrong but uh, i think it was a project that started uh, 20 odd years ago Yes, the Hungarian Automated Telescope Network. I think that's that right? right. Yes, I think that's right. Because that, that they've been searching for exoplanets and uh, they used yep. the transit method, and apparently yep. they used uh, initially. I don't know if it's still the same, but six small, fully automated yep. hat telescopes. Yep. And um, yeah, their their work has um, has proven quite successful. I think they've found quite a few exoplanets over uh, recent years it, it's, uh, using the. Um, uh, the system called array. Yeah. Um, so hats off to them. <laughs> very nice, Andrew. And, uh, um, you know, that's kind of paved the way. It was Kepler that showed how powerful the transit technique is for discovering exoplanets. Um, and uh, projects like HAT uh, recognise that you can use sm- smaller telescopes. If you put them on good sites, uh, you get pretty good, you know, um, photometric accuracy. That means the accuracy and the brightness of the of the of the star uh and um that has led to amateur astronomers being able to do this sort of thing with small telescopes so who knows that little telescope of yours might one day be discovering exoplanets if you really get your act together aren't you? yeah you know I'm, I'm likely to go oh oh i found a planet oh hang on that's earth yeah <laughs> oh, but someone move. else will probably have to tell me that. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's right. But uh, yeah, it's it's actually, it's, 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 oh, sorry, it's, it's kind of moved into the realm of citizen science. It's great stuff. Yeah, it's fantastic, and and modern technology and the internet and the uh, ability from you know people in their backyards to take astro photographs is uh, is just really opened things up incredibly well. Yeah, uh, I, I I was amused when I read the Hungarian Automated tele, uh, Telescope Network project uh, when we were trying to figure out what HAT stood for. And it, it's just prompted a memory in my stupid brain because I, I retain useless information, Fred. <laughs> we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised by how progressive Hungary is as a nation. And it, it sort of doesn't get... if if. People ask you to name the top 20 astronomical nations in the world. You wouldn't think Hungary. But they were also, wait for it, <laughs> the first nation to mass-produce perfume. There you go. I'm not kidding. Queen go. Elizabeth, not the <clears throat> one we know, but Queen Elizabeth of Hungary was the first one to commission perfume to be mass-produced. 
and it was called Hungry Water. Not ah, kidding. There you go. Don't ask me how I know that. No, and I won't. <laughs> uh, of course, the Egyptians invented perfume, but Hungary was the first country to mass produce it. There you go. And look what look at it today. It's like a forty-four billion dollar annual I'm sure um, it is, global yeah. industry. Yeah, yeah, amazing. I don't know how we got onto perfume, but anyway, um, I was hungry for information. Oh, there we go, Andrew. <laughs> I thought that might come up somewhere. Yeah, it had to, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. It had to. All right. Uh, we'll take a break. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Now, if you spend a lot of time online, of course, uh, you can visit us on our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io, where you can send us uh, messages or send us questions in text or audio form. You can visit our shop, of course, uh, and, uh, yeah, um, do whatever you like, um, except hack us. We don't really like that. But then uh, you could also, if you're a social media follower, uh, follow us now on Instagram. Spacenuts.io is our handle on Instagram. We're building up quite a following there now. And uh, a few people have actually messaged us, messaged us to say, uh, yeah, you're finally here. I can follow you. So, yes, we're on Instagram, spacenuts.io, if you'd like to look us up and follow us on Instagram. And the reason I mention that is because we have a question from Instagram, Fred. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, it's in, it's um, in, insta, in, insta an interesting. An insta question, yes. which came to us instantaneously. <laughs> Uh, this one's from Justin. He said, hey, guys, love the show. Oh, that, that's one. Uh, I was wondering about cryostasis for long-term space travel. Do you think it would be a viable option? Also, what do you think the health implications would be? Uh, thanks for your time. Justin from Tennessee in the United States. Thanks, Justin. Lovely to hear from you, and thanks for finding us. So uh, cryostasis, you do see this uh, in uh, all sorts of science fiction shows. It's, you know, it's, it's a way of um, stopping the ageing process and putting the body into a, a, a sort of a long-term slumber so that you can travel long haul without dying before you get to your destination, that kind of thing. Um, Viability-wise, I have my doubts. <laughs> yeah, it goes back uh, a long way, as you've said. Um, and in fact, my first encounter with cryostasis, although it wasn't caused that, called that, was um, when Dan Dare in the Eagle comic in 1955, this is, he went to uh, a, a planet called um, Kryptos, which was, I think, five light years from Earth. And in order to do that, they were basically frozen uh, in these what were called susper cells. Susper meaning suspended animation. Uh, mm. So, yeah, so Dan and Digby and all the crew uh, were climbed into these things and basically slept for five years or something while they got there at nearly the speed of light. So it's a concept that certainly as uh, science fiction writers have loved it. I mean, that, you know, that's a long time ago, 1955, for Frank Hampson, who created Dan Dare, to, to, to put something like that in it. Um, and certainly, you know, there's, there's scientific backing for the idea that you might do that. Um, and in fact, haven't we got people who've actually had their brains frozen um, so that, you know... Yeah, yeah. When, in, uh, in the hope that one day they'll be able to be reanimated. 
yeah, and sewn onto somebody else's body and, and carry on. Um, so the, the, I mean, you know, as as I always do, and I acknowledge um, my indebtedness to Wikipedia, which is pretty good at this kind of thing. Uh, that's where I went to try and get the formal definitions. Uh, so the term cryostasis was introduced to name the reversible preservation technology for live biological objects, which is based on using clathrate-forming gaseous substances under increased hydrostatic pressure and hypothermic temperatures. So that means you freeze things, but you you immerse them in, in this uh, clathrate-forming gas. What's a clathrate? It's a sort of chemical substance uh, which has... Uh, a, a lattice of molecules that can trap and contain other molecules. Um, that's basically what, 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 the, what the word means. So the idea is you've got these gases that you immerse the, uh, the, the, the target object in that form clathrates, that form these basically these lattices that stop the dehydration of the atoms of the body or whatever it is when you get down to these very low temperatures so that it's mm. it's a way of stopping the dehydration so the yes the, the the science of it is is established but whether you'd want to do it to a human and whether you'd want to do it uh for space travel is a very different question my guess is that there might well turn out to be some gotcha that would not allow this to happen. I mean, the technology to do it with a human body is not there yet, or else people would be doing it all the time yeah. uh, to, to, to sort of go to sleep for a long time and wake up when whatever it was that killed them or was going to kill them could actually be fixed. Uh, that's that's uh, still, you know, that's still um, technology of the future. Uh, as I said, that my guess is that, you know, when you mix it with space flight, is it going to work? I doubt it. Mm. But I don't have any really justifiable scientific reason for saying that other than being cautious, which most scientists are. Yeah. Uh, but I suspect there are problems. But what a great question, though. Oh, it's a good question. Yeah. It does happen in nature in some respects. There are um, frogs yes, that's that right. in Alaska that can um, freeze solid for seven months at a time and uh, their heart stops beating, but yeah. they don't die. Yeah, and and you know um, there are um, our little friends the, the tardigrades, yeah. uh, which which can dehydrate themselves. That's how it works, and it, it's perhaps it's a different process from cryostasis, but they've got a means of dehydrating themselves. They turn into a little ball. If I remember rightly, it's called a ton. I might have that wrong. I can't remember uh, these tiny tiny balls because the, um, uh, the the tardigrades are. are creatures that are about half a millimetre to a millimetre long. They are animals rather than, uh, you know, rather than uh, microbes. Uh, but they've demonstrated that they can survive on the outside of the International Space Station by right. doing this dehydration. So, yes, it, it, it does work in nature, um, but whether it could be harnessed for useful space flight, I'm not sure. And, and the, the alternative... Uh, you know, for long-distance space flight, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of years here, is to build big enough spacecraft that you can, you can have multiple generations of people uh, growing up and living their lives on these spacecraft to to to, to send a future generation to to orbit uh, Proxima Centauri or whatever uh, mm. to, to see what's happening. Yeah, it, it's it's 
it's the tyranny of distance that we've got in the universe, Andrew. It's going to lead you to these extraordinary solutions, which um, are the, really the only ways we could think about travelling these distances. At the yeah. Moment. yeah. I, I, I'm banking more on us finding a technology to create wormholes for long-haul yeah. travel or something yeah. like that rather than sleeping it off. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, yeah, uh, not in our lifetime, I wouldn't think. But, um, yeah, thanks for your question. Lovely to hear from you, Justin. Let's move on to our next question. This comes from uh, Vinicius, I believe, uh, in Brazil. Thanks for a great show. Um, good balance of information, humour and stuff. We're, we're very key. Yeah, stuff is the key. It is. Uh, I, I am new to the show and I've tried to find the two questions below in previous episodes, but I couldn't find them. So if um, we've already done them, don't worry about the question. Well, um, we're going to do it because I don't think we've really focused on this exclusively. So the first question from Venetius is, how could a body emit gravitons constantly without losing energy, mass or momentum? And the second question, which uh, sit back and relax, Fred, this is a long one. The <laughs> gravitomagnetism has been confirmed through experiments, for example, the Gravity Probe B satellite. A published paper has demonstrated that the use of general uh, a general relativity-based model, including the effects of gravitomagnetism instead of Newtonian-based models, can relieve the use of dark matter models for galactic rotation curves. Uh, some studies with collected data from telescopes have failed to find the dark matter. What would be necessary for the dark matter theory uh, to be replaced by gravitomagnetism uh, or frame dragging to explain the extra gravity in the universe? Thank, uh, thank you in advance. Keep up the great work. Thank you, uh, Vinicius. A um, couple of good questions. We'll go with the first one first. How could a body emit gravitons constantly without losing energy mass or momentum um so, so yeah bodies are essentially they they are losing energy um uh, it, it, the the way to think of this is uh and i'm kind of doing this in my head at the moment but uh, we know that when uh high intensity gravitational waves are created which is another way of talking about gravitons uh, by a collision between black holes and neutron stars for example or black holes and black holes i mean we've observed this already uh, in uh, measurements made by the lisa sorry the ligo um, gravitational wave detector that you, you get a collision between two objects and they merge to form suppose it's two black holes they merge to form uh, a, a much higher mass black hole, but the mass of the black hole that's formed is not equal to the sum of the masses of the two black holes. There's a deficiency um, which is interpreted as the loss of mass that that goes into generating this huge gravitational ripple that's formed. That the, you know the gravitational waves that are formed, mm. uh, and that all the sums sort of add up in that. So what you've got is uh, a turning of mass into energy, uh, and it's gravitational energy, so that's graviton. So there is a mass loss uh, in this extreme situation. And uh, the, the bottom line is that there will be a, a mass loss uh, in in a, a normal gravitational situation, but the mass loss is tiny because of E equals mc squared. The energy that's created, you know, if you think of energy being radiated, uh, the amount of mass 
that change that that works out as is infinitesimally small. I'm not sure that that answers the question, and I think I might be missing a couple of aspects of this. But the bottom line is that there there is there certainly is a mass loss when when you've got a large gravitational disturbance created, which is what is happening with these collisions. And so the other side of it, this is really uh, interesting stuff uh, that uh, Vinicius um, uh, points out, um, the, the idea of gravitomagnetism, uh, which has been confirmed through experiments uh, with the Gravity Probe B, which was um, one of a number of gravity sensing um, uh, experiments that were that were launched probably 20 years ago. Uh, Gravity Probe B, if I remember rightly, had a gyroscopic sphere spinning, uh, which was one of the most perfect spheres ever made, mm. uh, and detected what's called frame dragging. It's the relativistic phenomenon, whereas uh, where a rotating body, and in, in this case it was the Earth, actually uh, detects the uh, uh, sorry the, the rotating body drags space-time around with it, if I can put it that way. I That's, do think we touched on that. Yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. A while yeah. back. Um, it, was, it was a long time ago. Yeah. But um, that frame dragging, which uh, apparently um, is a confirmation of, uh, of, of gravitomagnetism, uh, or sometimes called gravitoelectromagnetism, and it's because of that it's sometimes abbreviated to GEM, which is a nice... You know, a nice acronym. It's not quite perfumes, but it's jewels, which are you know the same league. Um, and and it 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 comes about. What's gravito electromagnetism? It's where you compare the equations for electromagnetism, which are actually Maxwell's James Clerk Maxwell's field equations, uh, and compare them with the Einstein field equations of relativistic gravitation, uh, or, or usually known as general relativity. So you've got this uh, almost a, a trick um, of, uh, of looking at uh, gravity as as a as an analog. Sorry, uh, looking at electromagnetism as an analog for gravity, but it um, it has interesting consequences because you can link it to something we've just been talking about in a different field that the, the kinetic effects of electromagnetism are how you know that if you get magnetic effects if you've got a moving electric charge uh, then it, it you get magnetic effects and in the same way magnetism actually limits a moving electric electric charge of forming a magnetosphere which is what we've just been talking about and <clears throat> and so um, it's a way of of looking at how uh, how moving objects uh, in a gravitational field how that gravitational field affects them. And as I said, it was uh, or, or as uh, uh, as our li listener has said, uh, it was demonstrated by gravity probe B. Now, if you if you do the trusty thing and go and have a look at this on Wikipedia, you wind up with some really interesting but quite complex equations but it but which do demonstrate those similarities between um you know between uh, electromagnetism and this gravito gravito electromagnetism um whether it's 
it's uh, so uh, at the outer edges of this theory, um, you've got uh, some really quite uh, provocative ideas, um, which uh, which may well be helpful in understanding the universe. Uh, I'm choosing my words carefully here because it's uh, it's it's a you know it's a it's a region where. Uh, you can form analogies, but you can take them too far, if I might say that, and so they, they, they don't work. But scientists as eminent as Roger Penrose have actually used these gem ideas uh, for, you know, um, looking at any the, the kind of frame dragging effects that you might get from rotating black holes, uh, and apparently this. Penrose mechanism has been proved quite rigorously. So there's there's all sorts of really interesting stuff uh, that comes from uh, gravitomagnetism, uh, and uh, there are still experiments going on uh, at the moment as well to to try and um, to try and look at uh, these some of these phenomena. Um, whether it can explain dark matter is an interesting and provocative idea, uh, how you can link these two together. And that's something I confess I haven't looked at, uh, mm. but will do as a result of this question. And maybe next time it comes up, I'll be able to give you a slightly more coherent answer rather than the garbled uh, ramp through gem that we've just heard. <laughs> well, we love the garble. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. You've just made me feel heaps better. <laughs> <laughs> just doing my job. Just doing my job. Doing your job. Uh, yeah. No, great question and, and very uh, thought-provoking. And uh, as we try to resolve this, this mystery of dark matter, all these kinds of theories are going to sort of come up. Uh, and, and I love the way our audience uh, comes up with with ideas and thoughts sometimes and and tosses them at us and says could dark matter actually be mustard i spill a lot of that stuff um <laughs> but it, it's uh, no it's good it's good uh and thank you venetius for getting in touch with us and thanks for finding the show too we uh we always welcome new people on board tell your friends tell your mum um and and don't forget if you do have a question or a thought or a comment for us you can send it to us via our website spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io and just uh click on the um ama tab at the top and that's where you can find the text or voice message interface and go from there it's pretty simple Fred, that brings us to the end of the last show of the year. Yes, wow. it is. Yeah, that's right. Um, yep, 2022 looms large on our horizons. Next time you and I speak, it will be indeed 2022. It will point. be, and, and, yeah. and we look forward to it, and hopefully it'll be a much, much better year than it has been this year and the one before, but uh, who can tell where we're headed? Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's been a time in our lives that I guess will be talked about for for years and years to come and even long after we're gone. But uh, let's hope we can get past it real soon. Mm -hmm. Fred, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week or next year, whichever comes first. <laughs> Sounds great, Andrew. Take care. And you have a happy new year. And if you're in Scotland, a happy Hogmanay. <laughs> <laughs> you too, Fred. Thank you so much. Yeah. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for your company. Nice to uh, be able to share our thoughts and, uh, uh, and Fred's knowledge with you and keep those questions coming in. And we'll talk to you again on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye.
like Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Okay.